would know like, mayonnaise. Dip this. fries and mayonnaise. Oh. Um, I've tr- I have, I have tried that, but not on the reg. <laughs> That's like my go-to fry. It's like it's like a cheap aioli. It's just mayonnaise. <laughs> <laughs> cheap aioli. Seriously. You're I right, but you shouldn't you. say it. <laughs> it's an aioli, but without any of the flip-flops no, flavor. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Aiolis are made from mayonnaise. Or from so great. Well, oil. thanks for listening to Not Yet a Doctor. This has been the discussion on <laughs> This Miracle has been the whitest mayonnaise. episode yet. <laughs> I learned a lot. Welcome to Not Yet a Doctor, the podcast where we discuss the science of miracles. My alternative tagline, the podcast where the hosts have very good taste. <laughs> so, <laughs> any guesses on what our topic of today is based on no, those wait, you have taglines? to introduce yourself. You mean people don't know who I am yet? <laughs> not yet. You're not famous not yet. yet. I'm not yet. I'm also not yet a people doctor. People need so. to know. The, people, need to be reminded. The people need to know. Nice to meet you all, in case we haven't met before. I'm Sienna, I'm one of the hosts of this podcast, and I'm doing my PhD in neuroscience at McGill University. It's a pleasure doing business with you. I'm <laughs> Alistair, I have my PhD in analytical chemistry from Queen's University. And I'm Om, pleasure, doing my <laughs> wrapping up my PhD up in biochemistry at McGill. And we're your PhD three, to be or not to be. <laughs> that will always be the question. That will always be the question. Uh, yes, so lovely co-hosts. What are your guesses? I'm taking one guess each, and then we're revealing the topic, so. Miracles. Oh, we are deciding the definitive truth of if Miracle Whip is actually mayonnaise or if it is not mayonnaise. Okay, cool. It's not (laughs) according to my tongue, but... I, you know what, if people want to use it as mayonnaise, I think that's acceptable. I will personally prefer mayonnaise over Miracle Whip, but yeah. I do not think it is mayonnaise. It is no. What is going, I've entered some sort of niche realm of, like, <laughs> culture that I have no idea about. Mayonnaise and Miracle Whip. You... I hope that's what we're talking about. My guess. What's your guess? Is... I don't know. When I think of miracles and taste, I think pizza. <laughs> I love that. Okay. Controversial That's take. That's a miracle to me. Does pineapple belong on pizza? Um, I think people can put whatever they want on pizza. Do I agree with them? Okay. That this is optimal? Pizza-ing? No. I would take that away from you. Um, okay. I have enjoyed the pleasure of a pineapple pizza at a conference, but I think that's starving grad student mentality. Yes. Um, Hitting me a little bit, so I may have a skewed perception. It's not terrible, but there's way better. Mm -hmm, True. I would agree with that take. I agree as well. Okay. We're not talking about pizza. We're not talking about mayonnaise. We are talking about taste. Okay. Um, So this is my third installment on the series of what senses do we have and how do they work? Yeah. <laughs> if you want second installment, go listen to Color Vision, which is broadly about vision. And if you want the first installment, go listen to the Olfactory System episode in season one, which is about how your nose knows. Boom. And this means we have definitely at least five seasons. 
Sorry, we're committed. Minimum. Oh, I see. Minimum. You're doing a, a sense of season. <laughs> a sense of season. That's what I decided uh, based on the fact that this is my third sense and my third season. Nice. Makes sense. Love it. Makes sense. <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> so what do you guys know about senses and the sense of taste? We have, okay, I know that it's not entirely correct, okay. but we have five different tastes. Mm-hmm. There's five kind of main tastes. Can you list them? Uh, sour, salty, sweet, bitter, and umami. Yeah. Savory. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it used to be that, like, I think people thought that different areas of the tongue were for different f- tastes, but I think I learned that that's actually not true because it doesn't really make sense. Like, if you eat something that's sour, you taste the sourness all over your tongue it's not like you only mm-hmm. taste it at the tip or the side or one side so um maybe you can correct my thoughts on that but yeah that's all pretty that's accurate true. honestly okay. i think that's a great basis yeah most of your taste receptors are on your tongue <laughs> yeah <laughs> most are that's what i'll say <laughs> well yeah most somewhere else <laughs> Wait, where are your other taste receptors? In your butt. In your butt. (laughs) What? (laughs) Have you ever had a spicy meal? And you came out spicy? Ever had a spicy aioli there? (laughs) I wouldn't... I wouldn't say that I've tasted my food on its way out. If... If you've... If you've felt the spice, you've tasted the food. (laughs) Is that taste or is that just Mm -hmm. like... Uh, heat perception like spice food hot foods spicy foods aren't mm-hmm. actually like it's not heat right right yeah. it's a molecule that makes your tongue feel hot and that's what we say as spicy right yeah that's right consider spicy. it's, so it's when the same you, mechanism <laughs> yeah okay so when it's spicy down there it's not actually hot <laughs> it's just right spicy but like sour like if i eat a lot of candy my poops don't become yeah. sweet like, well, I don't taste them. Have you tried them? <laughs> no. <laughs> what I'm, what I'm, and that's why I'm saying most of them are in your tongue, and you have some yes. of these heat receptors, I'll call them. This will definitely you, get yeah, cleared up. It's interesting. But Om is more right here in that it is the same. It's the same stuff. At the start of the donut and at the end of the donut, it's the same stuff. Wow. The donut is the human. <laughs> so then... The one final thing that I yes. know about taste, which I'm sure you'll talk about, is that the way that we taste is we have taste buds on our tongue, mm-hmm. and that's just like little bumps on the tongue, and they have taste receptors, flavor receptors. And one other thing that I know is that most of tasting is actually smell. Okay, so um, great episode today, everyone. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Uh, please tune in next time. <laughs> so, yes. Okay. Overall, all the things that have been said here are predominantly true. We have taste buds. These are our primary organs for detecting different types of tastes, which are essentially different chemical compounds. Uh, Very similar to how we discussed in our olfactory episode, where we have cells in our nose that are responsible for detecting different types of aerosolized compounds, or compounds in the air. Um, So when we have 
stuff in our mouth and food in our mouth, we have taste receptors that are responsible for detecting those molecules. And they're localized in taste buds, which are in the, they're called the papillae, which are the bumps on our tongue. But it's not like one bump is one taste bud. There's many taste buds in a bump because taste buds are much smaller than the bumps. The bumps are visible to the eye. The taste buds are not. Um, And they look kind of like onions that they have a very tiny tip at the top and they stick little hairs out into the top where the I guess the bump is you could picture that but it's there's actually a dip but like I said since there's multiple taste buds in one bump that's we're talking about microstructure here I guess not macrostructure and that's where the tip of the cells are so that they can detect compounds as they come in and then the bodies of the cells bulge out into like the body of the onion okay Mm-hmm. So they're very cute. Um, <laughs> I can show a picture of this. So this is a little oniony taste bud. Um, oh, so there's multiple cells in one. Bud, yeah, there's multiple cells in one bud. They're all hugging lots each of other. Lots buds in the bud. Yeah, mm-hmm. they're all kind of cozy. They have like nice big cell bodies and, like I said, little arms that reach up and down. Mm-hmm. And then these taste buds are also innervated by nerve fibers that come from. Um, cranial nerves so these transmit information about what's going on inside the taste bud they also enervate the area around it so they transmit more information about what's going on around the taste bud too to our brain Mm. Um, so the thing about taste (laughs) in what I've learned in doing my research is it's a very complicated sense and it's I think the reason why it's complicated is that we have a single perception of taste. You know, at the end of our road, you bite something and you get the taste. Mm-hmm. And we assume that that's because it's in our mouth and on our tongue. And we've tried to break that down into flavors. But I think the big takeaway here, and we'll talk about how those flavors are broken down and all sorts of things, but ultimately... If we're talking about taste as a sense and taste in like the very colloquial form of the term, this is a very multimodal sensation that is constructed by almost all of the parts of our brain, including vision, um, definitely like physical sensation, touch, texture. And then, like you said, a vast majority of it is also constructed by the olfactory system. So the sensation that you actually experience when you're tasting something, quote unquote, is like a multimodal experience but there are specific things going on in the taste buds that contribute to this tongue tasting pathway of sensory experience and chemical detection right Kachow. so <laughs> <laughs> i've got a catchphrase now <laughs> i have a question then if yeah. tasting is so reliant on the other senses to be its own sense yes why evolutionarily did we develop taste like i can understand why we developed vision or sense and smelling uh-huh. <laughs> or like hearing but what kind of purpose other than making like knowing that the food that we're eating is good tasting or bad tasting or not rotten like i guess i can see that but like you could do that with smell or sight you know well it's because we have to eat to live mm-hmm. and so when you chew your food and break it down, you're exposed to more chemicals than what would just be in the air surrounding the item. 
right. and you want to know what those chemicals are, especially if they're toxic. Because, mm. like, most plants that are toxic don't necessarily have a smell associated with them saying they're toxic. And, like, a lot of berries that are red are toxic, but a lot of berries that are red are also not toxic. So how do you figure mm. out, based on vision, which berries are going to be toxic? Yeah. So, guess... yes, definitely it's, like, I think what I'm trying to say is, like, the chemical sensation of it developed evolutionarily to deter us from eating bad stuff. Right. And also to give us information about not only, like, what is safe to eat, but what is good to eat. Like, what has mm. high caloric content and what's going to bring us a lot of energy and what's going to be, like, the best food to keep our bodies going. And also, mm. you know, there's aspects of it that, I mean, if you're deficient in something, then that thing will taste better to you when you're eating it. So calcium um, preference in mice. Mice don't like calcium salts unless they're deficient in calcium. Oh, interesting. So and there's a lot of aspects of why we need taste generally speaking, mm -hmm. for a diet. Um, but this, I think more what I'm trying to say is like the human perception of like our cognition of taste, especially in like our day-to-day -day lives of where we're eating things we like at meal times and like the cultural um, development of meals and foods in general. This is a multimodal, multifactorial equation happening. This mm -hmm. isn't like an equation at the tongue. Would you say it's kind of like the idea that, you know, culturally or whatever we still associate foods that might be evolutionarily bad in a sense like whatever let's say a bitter taste is not yeah necessarily a good thing but now you know we drink coffee and love chocolate and mm -hmm. dark chocolates but that's part of a culture associated with food that we are so like this ends up tasting good to us exactly in the end yeah right? but we can still distinguish yeah i think that would mm -hmm. be accurate um and there's also like a very huge that's a good point too like the bitter taste um idea is most things that are bitter are it's because they're toxic but there's taste learning both aversive taste learning so learning to avoid tastes and learning to enjoy tastes and i think the bitter taste is one of those things that is like very much you learn to enjoy bitter foods you don't actually like people aren't necessarily programmed to like bitter foods from the start but it's an acquired taste there's the whole idea of an acquired taste for foods and also like i said aversive learning occurs too so as a personal example, when I was like 12, I had my mom bought camembert for like no particular reason except that I think she was craving it. I'd never had camembert before. Um, I'd had brie once, but that was a very different experience. And I tried some of the camembert and I was like, wow, this is stinky. I'm... But as a kid, I wasn't, I would try things and I'd be like, I don't think I like this, but then I would keep eating it um, <laughs> because I, I liked, I don't know. I did this like also with like those um, grapevine, grape leaf stuffed rice stuffed grape leaves they're like a greek mm. oh yeah fox, um, I don't know. stuffed grape leaves i was just talking about ordering it the other day <laughs> they're so good but like i remember it's syrian and greek yeah syrians also eat it and i remember my mom again she go like would go through food cravings and she'd just buy like things she saw and she bought like a huge can of these and i ate one i was like this i do not like but i must keep eating them <laughs> and now i love them i like adore them <laughs> definitely learn to love that but the camembert, I liked, and I grew to like it, and I was eating it quite night, all like for a whole evening, and I was like, yeah, these slices are good. Like it is stinky, but I'm starting to like that, and I think I like that. Middle of the night, massive uh, stomach flu, was throwing up the whole next day, and I cannot eat camembert or any stinky cheese. Like I just cannot. Right. I will not. Mm -hmm. It's horrifying to me. Aversive taste conditioning. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Nothing wrong with camembert. A lot of people like it. 
I, I like it. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. It's and as far as stinky cheeses go, camembert is like one of the mildest stinky cheeses. Yeah, but yeah. like, I, it's yeah, ruined all stinky cheese for me. Hmm. Sad. I was gonna say they do this experiment like with mice, and that they'll give them something that tastes good, but pair it with some sort of bad experience, and teach. And it's it's called like aversive taste conditioning. So you're just teaching animals to avoid certain tastes based on a bad experience it's like a hundred percent a thing and how many people of our legal drinking age um (laughs) don't drink tequila because oh god i could never like i can't touch tequila anymore Mm -hmm. because i had too much one time and you know was throwing up all night well tequila is actually pretty flavorful and it's a nice it's nice in drinks i like tequila but yeah you know there's a lot of people that can't drink tequila because of a bad experience like that Mm -hmm. so yeah good point um yeah so but to to get into the nitty-gritty of it so taste we know is culturally defined and a broad experience in our brains but at our tongue there are some things happening (laughs) we do have Mm -hmm. things happening at our tongue level and so i'm just going to share my screen again here so you can see the powerpoint slide so here again you can see the taste bud and it's this beautiful little onion and it's got multiple cells in it with their arms all sticking up to wave around to try and detect things and it's surrounded by epithelial cells and keratinocytes which are just like basal cells that hang out and help form structures and do other processes um but the cells within the taste bud are sort of they're kind of neurons they're kind of not um they're just really honestly specialized chemosensing cells i think is the best you can neuroscientists and i don't know i feel like scientists generally like to define cells in like very well-known categories but sometimes it's not necessarily useful to define a very specific cell type as a neuron it has performs neuron-like functions for sure and some of them more than others but what you can see here in this depiction is that there's three cells labeled type one type two and type three cells Mm -hmm. and so these are all different cells performing different functions type one cells are sort of helper cells they don't necessarily contribute to taste sensations or um, binding and transmitting signals of molecules but they do help the other two perform that job it seems so we're not going to talk very much about type one cells Mm. type two and type three cells however are like the primary taste receptor cells the primary cells that you know are going to interact with different types of tastes um and so we're going to talk about those and is there in each in each bud is there only one of the type 3 cell in that diagram there's only one type 3 cell but no um so that does so the relative rarity of the type 3 cell is greater than the type 2 cell and type 1 Mm. cell the type 1 cells are about 50 percent of the cells in the bud i think the type 2 cells are like 20 to 40 percent and the type 3 cells are 10 percent of the buds um so the type 2 cells are yeah tasting cells they can transmit they're typically associated with transmitting information about sweet or umami flavors um and they can also transmit information about bitter Hmm. so they do a lot type 3 cells however seem to be mainly associated with transmitting information about sour taste so as we discussed there are five primary tastes that we feel like we've defined salty 
sweet, sour, bitter, and umami. And so as you can see, I've mentioned sweet and umami, which are type 2 cells. Sour, which is type 3 cells. Um, bitter and salty. Oh, bitter Bitter was also type 2 cells. Type mm. 2 cells do bitter, sweet, umami. Type 3 cells do sour. Salty, we're not sure. Really? We don't know. <laughs> Damn. We don't know. We're not sure. Could be a multiple of factors. There's some evidence for certain different things that are going on, but we don't really know um, who's responsible for mm. saltiness or if it's just everyone. It's no obvious culprit. Does anything else contribute to something being salty other than sodium chloride? Because, like, the sour flavor could be citric acid, it could be mm-hmm. acetic acid, it could be various different chemicals. Same with, like, bitter and these other things. But salty, it's just salt. Like, is... Predominantly sodium chloride. I don't even think, like, other salts don't have the same taste. Yeah. As sodium chloride. Like I said, calcium chloride, if you, like, are doing calcium-based salts, they taste bitter. People, mm. as I said, like, mice and humans both find them aversive. You don't like, even at low concentrations, and um, unless you maybe have a calcium deficiency in a mouse, in which case then they like the calcium salt, mm. but... No, salty is seems to be sodium chloride, and some of the most recent research seems to indicate. So for a while, it was thought it was just like the sodium ion because there is a sodium ion channel, generally. Mm-hmm. So that's just a protein that transports sodium ions that seems to be implicated in salt detection in mice. But this doesn't seem to be obvious in humans as much. And then mm-hmm. more recent research found that it maybe is collaborating with a chloride channel and process so it might need be that you need both sodium and chloride to get sort of a the consistent the detection of both sodium chloride might be like what contributes to the consistent salt taste that we demonstrate but this salt is still a good example of something else which is the fact that although so as i've explained there are specific cells that are responsible for detecting certain types of flavors based on the compounds present in a food that you're eating There's other information that's transmitted about the quality of those, and also that same information might be transmitted by um, neighboring fibers. So the nerves that innervate the tongue can innervate both the taste bud, but it can innervate the surrounding area of the taste bud. And saltiness is an interesting example because salt is really, really good. I think (laughs) I love salt (laughs) until a certain point. Mm. And there's absolutely a cap at which anyone will find salt delicious in their food. Um, and so that's a really weird bimodal experience of salt, and it's explained in this graph, which is that Ooh. salt intake goes up until a certain concentration of salt based on your own weight, weight by volume, but of the... Um, anyways, certain concentrations of salt are delicious. Once you get too high to a concentration, the deliciousness goes down very fast. Mm. And the... In blue is graphed the corda tympani response. So this is the response of nerve fibers that innervate specifically the taste buds. So these are responsible for taste transmission. So this Mm. is supposedly to represent information coming specifically from within the taste bud from the taste cells. And you can see that that's correlating going really high up with the concentrations that are associated with delicious flavor, um, increased salt intake. Whereas the trigeminal nerve response, which is associated with uh, the other fibers that are innervating the surrounding area and transmit information also about like mechanical stimulation and heat, 
uh, that response goes up with the higher increased salt concentration. So it might be like a balance between the taste bud detection as well as the detection through these nerve fibers that are elsewhere in the tongue that tells you mm. about the deliciousness of salt. But unclear. Um, but I think it's an interesting example because the intake of salt or like how much salt you're going to consume is explained by the inputs from both of these factors. Uh, so yeah, but moving back backwards a little, back to the taste bud, we've talked about, you know, the surrounding nerve fibers. We talked about cells type two and type three, which are mostly responsible for the tastes, the rest of the tastes, umami, sweet, bitter, and sour. Um, there's some really interesting stuff happening that I'm going to talk about. So essentially there's a lot of study, I guess a lot of research on sweet and bitter tastes and a little bit on sour tastes and some really interesting research that then we're going to get into about sweet versus sour and how to make mm. sour sweet. Um, and what you oh, have to I know, know about this, what you have to know about this is that type two cells express there are kind of two classes of type 2 cells. One, express receptors that can bind to either sweet or umami flavors, and one, express receptors that bind to bitter flavors. And so this is how you get the partitioning of bitter versus sweet and sour, or sweet and umami, although um, all of these inputs then go into the same place, so it's unclear necessarily how they're decoded and mapped later on. But the sweet mm. cells and umami cells express type 1 receptors, and the bitter cells express type 2 receptors, and then these receptors bind in sort of a, the sweet ones at least, are a venous flytrap type receptor. So it's open and un, unactivated when it's not binding anything. But when a sweet molecule comes in, say for instance, glucose or saccharin or aspartame, it will bind to somewhere on the receptor protein, this venous flytrap, and that'll bring it closer together and shut. And this triggers a whole bunch of downstream signaling cascade events proteins activating proteins activating proteins telling neurons to go 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 with the taste and that's how you get the sweet taste or alternatively a bitter taste in the case of the type 2 receptors mm. um the sour situation is a little bit more complex in that sourness is not so sourness itself comes from protons present in a solution so this is Protons are an indication of how acidic a solution is. Acids are associated with sour tastes. And therefore, you might think that incredibly acidic solutions like hydrogen chloride, for instance, HCl, which is one of the most you can make really, really acidic, pH 2 or 3 or whatever you want, you would think this might taste really sour. Mm -hmm. It does not taste very sour. Really? <laughs> In fact... Organic acids, like acetic acid or like citric acid, as you mentioned, Alistair, these taste much more sour than hydrogen chloride, despite being usually less acidic. Interesting. And so what this told us is that for these sour detecting cells, the, I guess, essentially it was thought that once you have protons in your mouth, that would tell you how sour something is. But that's not the case. It's actually once you have protons in the cell. And organic acids are much more capable of permeating into the cells than inorganic acids. So the sourness actually comes from the permeation of organic acids into the type 3 cells. Yeah. And this is what triggers the sour signaling cascade. So 
when I eat super, super sour candies and yeah. eat a lot of them and burn my tongue, like my okay. tongue is sore. Yeah. What's happening there? Have I like burst cells? Probably. <laughs> I don't know. Like I think too many dam- hydrogen ions in the cell. You're probably damaging your like, cell membranes. Yeah. Because it feels like it, honestly. Yeah. I believe that. you're killing stop. cells for sure. <laughs> okay. If you get that like white coating of dead cells on your tongue, I mean, you're just killing cells. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. I don't know the specifics okay. of how acids kill cells, but I know that they do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I imagine it's some sort of denaturing. Yeah, denaturing, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah, you're probably like making it tough for the proteins to do their jobs. Right. Yeah. Oh, I guess that's the cells. Like, I quit. that's another. Thing I quit. Like... <laughs> <laughs> I guess one of Sour the interesting... candies are basically just the acid. Yeah. yeah. One of the interesting distinctions, I guess, where I dr- say that, like, you know, taste taste cells are like neurons but they're not neurons is because there are a type 4 cell that's an immature taste cell so these develop into type 2 and type 3 taste cells so the taste buds are renewing they have renewable mm. properties but over aging as i know we have some people who are interested in aging um i guess during that you know old the older you get the fewer of those papillae or tongue bumps that you have and also the fewer taste buds generally speaking so Throughout the aging process, your taste buds start to die. But generally speaking, within a short term, your taste buds are regenerating and renewing. Hmm. So I guess I, I was thinking about this when we're naming the five senses and stuff. And I, re- I realized I was like, I was talking about spicy earlier. And that's not a sense yeah. as well. It's a, it's a trick. It's a trick of the it's a trick of the chemicals. So I was wrong about that. Yeah, but yeah. that's why like... The issue with taste as a sensation is that it is multimodal. And like mm. uh, the reason why we say most of taste is smell is because in mice, if you knock out their sense of smell or destroy their sense of smell, they also lose like 90% of taste preference. Interesting. Right. But, and I think also, peop- I mean, if you've ever had a plugged nose, you know as well that you can't taste things as well. Mm-hmm. And it's because the cumulative experience that your brain is putting together is based on inputs from the taste centers the smell centers the vision centers and that and type the of thing center. <laughs> later on <laughs> that's part of it yeah. what's really fascinating actually is so the butt the butthole experience the, the spiciness is from capsaicin which is a molecule alistair knows all about it because we studied it together in our biochemistry course in sweden So capsaicin just triggers heat channels, which are a type of receptor. There's tons of receptors Mm -hmm. on our cells. There's all sorts of types. A heat channel is expressed. They're expressed like all over the cells of our tongue and mouth. They're not just in the taste buds. They're on many of them. And they're also on the the fibers that innervate our tongue, which is why I say like there's multimodal sensations coming from the tongue is because these fibers Mm -hmm. not only are responsible for transmitting information about the taste cells themselves and what molecules that they're finding, but it's also these fibers are then responding to heat and they're responding to pressure and they're responding to um, dryness mm. even. They'll mm. respond to like astringency. So that's why it's kind of similar that it is still almost tasting because the cells in your butt express this receptor for heat. Um, and yeah. it's processed by the same pathway. But the taste receptors are different, like the taste receptors themselves that are expressed on the taste cells because they're supposed to be responsible for binding those specific molecules. Mm-hmm. So they're expressed on taste cells, but <laughs> they're expressed 
everywhere in the body. We have taste receptors in our gut. We have taste receptors in our lungs. Like these receptors have been repurposed and are reused in cells all over the body, which was wild to find out. In our so, lungs? In our lungs. What? Okay, mm-hmm. so you said that they're repurposed, so they're not being used for taste. Well, they're not being used to, like, modulate our experience of taste of the brain, but they are being used to bind the same molecules, you know? Like, the, the function of the protein hasn't changed in that it still is responsible to detect molecules. It's just because it's in a different place in our body, this is for a different purpose. So in our gut, it's we have, of course, taste receptors for detecting, you know, bitter and also sweet things, and mostly to do with regulating then our digestive processes, probably, and telling bacteria to produce more stuff or telling us to throw up. Who knows? Like, all sorts of reasons why there could be mole- receptors for specific types of molecules in our gut to regulate digestion. That one makes sense. But the lungs one is... Um, I didn't really read the paper about this. I didn't really understand it or want to. <laughs> it's too alien to me. Why are we tasting molecules in our lungs? No, it's really interesting, but I felt like too deep of a dive. But they're also expressed by cells in our brain. Mm-hmm. They're really multipurpose receptors. Interesting. Um, now, they're just are detecting cells, chemicals. Are they detecting different chemicals or are they detecting No, they're detecting and binding the same, the same chemicals. things. Wow. Or they can. Interesting. The function of the protein can't change. But the outcome changes. So what is what you do in response? And that's like, yeah. It's this is why I can eat three-day-old shrimp fried rice and not taste that it's off, but then my body definitely knows that it's off when it reaches my stomach and I have food poisoning. Yeah, <laughs> and there's also other things going on there too because some yeah there's some like toxic molecules that are small enough to just like diffuse through your gut lining into your blood system. And then we have certain places in our brain that are more permeable to what's in our blood that are like fast relay centers to get you to throw up if it detects those molecules. That mm. explains my response to eating the three-day-old shrimp fried rice. Don't eat three-day-old <laughs> shrimp fried rice unless you want to. And I, It was the only food I had and I was I also really hungover. Anyway. We've uh... all done it. We've all been there. <laughs> I gave myself food oh, poisoning like two weeks life. ago. No shame. <laughs> For the same reason. <laughs> That's student life. <laughs> student life. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So that's what's fascinating about the taste receptors. Um, mm-hmm. Some of the things that are interesting about... so, And this is also why, again, I have to like reiterate that it's hard to define taste as one thing. Because if the taste receptors are expressed everywhere doing different things, and taste is created in our brain in response to multimodal inputs, it's really hard to define what our tongue is doing as a sort of separate sense from what's happening in our brain because what our tongue is doing is the same as what our lungs are presumably doing it's just processing it along a different pathway into our brain along with other inputs um so it's really cool uh mm-hmm. some of the things that i wanted to bring up that contrast the taste system to like other sensory systems is that there's no map so like you said alistair there's no map on the tongue of where tastes are detected or where they belong And even as we discussed, you know, there's been a lot of a very contentious topic in the taste field, which I always love discovering contentious topics in fields I didn't know about, (laughs) which is that like, there's two different kind of uh, generally in neuroscience, there's two different formats for the way we think sensory information can be processed. One is called labeled line. And the other is more multimodal or like unlabeled line, I guess. But Labeled line means you have one thing that detects one thing and sends that information along one line to one other thing in your brain. 
so that you have different information processed in different wires. And mm-hmm. that's like a really, that probably is what intuitively makes sense to most researchers the most for how we detect distinct experiences because we have distinct cells and distinct mm, networks on that job. And then it can be put together into a more holistic experience at higher levels in our brain. But at the level of detection, it's detected sort of in one way. And so a lot of people thought that this was the case for taste buds and that like each cell in the circuit was sort of detecting one flavor. Mm -hmm. But it does not seem to be the case and it doesn't make a lot of sense within the topic of taste buds because each taste bud express each taste bud has many cell types that detect all of the different flavors but these are only innervated by a few cell types up the road so you essentially have like um a tightening of the pipe where you have a lot of cells detecting a lot of different things but going to fewer cells down the line so there's really doesn't seem to be a distinction along the lines of where bitter tastes are sent to and where sweet tastes are sent to they seem to be processed mm-hmm. by the same inputs and outputs so we don't know right. why why it works <laughs> the way it does, but it does work. And when you look then mm-hmm. in the human brain at sort of the taste centers of the brain, which do exist, but taste centers are innervated, like I said, from inputs from olfaction and vision and the general mechanical cortex, so the like touch-sensitive cortex, there's a little bit of, or there seems to be a little bit of distinction for tastes, but not a lot. There's really not a lot of evidence that even within the cortex, you can identify where a sweet taste is processed versus where a bitter taste is processed. Mm. But usually you can identify a good taste versus a bad taste. There seems to be some mm. like valency um, differentiation, but not specific taste differentiation. And I've got no answers for you on that. That's just the way it is. <laughs> That's <laughs> the controversy. We... <laughs> yeah. Um, I think this also kind of makes sense in the, in the sense that... Um, <laughs> You can say if something is more sweet than another thing, or you can say if something is sweet or bitter, but you don't really have much fine-tuning of where it's sweet in your mouth or the the type of sweetness that it is, really. Like, it's a pretty, not a dull, I mean, yeah, kind of a dull sense. And that could, I don't know, I'm just thinking that's possibly why, or that that is also a probable explanation for this uh, shortening of the pipe you know it could be i think um i have you ever tried stevia or artificial yes. sweeteners mm-hmm. yeah. they straight up taste different to me than sugar but they, they bind the same cells yeah. they do but yeah I, I i almost think that they're a bit bitter yeah so it's possible it's possible but that's exactly the problem we don't know why yeah okay. how to yeah, process okay. that we don't know what's going on in the taste cells is the general conclusion I came to. But, uh, yeah. But we do know some things, like I've explained. And it is kind of interesting that, like, I think um, I found this Wikipedia stuff, graph that is, like, it's, like, the whole kind of network of how taste is formed up. And I think this explains the problem very well. All right. 
So. Oh my god. This is the slide. So you can see here you have food, and then you have your mouth and saliva, which helps break down the food, and it hits your tongue. These are your papillae. You have different types of papillae. I didn't look into what the different types are, what they're doing, so sorry. Don't ask me that, but <laughs> they're just different types. Microvilli are the little arms that are waving around from the taste bud and bring molecules into the taste bud who are able to have these taste receptor cells that can receive the information. And then it's processed by, you know, one type of facial nerve from our cranial nerves that sends information down one path to this other area of the brain but it's also processed by the glossal pharyngeal nerve which is a different nerve that innervates the tongue and also the vagus nerve and also another facial nerve like there's all sorts of information that is being taken down different routes from our mouth that is presumably relaying different types of information or maybe like overlapping types of information like same and different and then sending it to a different sort of processing center in our brain. And then, you know, this goes on to do different things in our brain in different centers as well. And eventually it goes into, you know, the thalamus and hypothalamus where this information is further processed and sent to other regions of our brain. What this doesn't really um, finalize is being sent to like the gustatory cortex or like the the cortex is always like kind of like the final processing location of our brain, like the overarching thing but you can see that like there's so many different places where this information is sent and processed and distributed mm. from like there's so many different ways and so many different types of information that it's like even on the level of the fact that we do have taste buds that have specific receptors for specific molecules even this information becomes so um complex very quickly because we have so many different neurons somehow responsible for taking different aspects of information from our mouth and putting it sending it both to the same places and to different places to create the sensation of taste. Right. Yeah. So. And so like almost our brain is integrating so many different pieces that it's exactly. to, to get to a final outcome. So like if someone, you know, when we say stevia tastes bitter, that might be some accumulation of other factors. Exactly. Like what it, even memory, how it looks, what yeah. it's doing. It could be. Yeah. So I think like, and even like, even without those things, like even without like other senses being integrated into the multimodal sense of taste, there are so many features of taste or features yeah. of sensations from our mouth that are processed in so many different ways to get to the final sensation of taste that it's just like, it's hard to, it's hard to narrow down, honestly. And it's hard mm -hmm. to study because of this, uh, because even like, if you're studying taste, even then you have like people taste things differently and have different aversions and different um, interests and in different foods and tastes. And some people like sweets more or can taste them better. And there's super tasters who seem to be able to detect bitter substances at a much lower concentration than other people. So there's all sorts of kind of variability and variation in how people perceive food, mm -hmm. yummy, delicious food. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the interesting you know, there's, I guess there's a few interesting things about it. I think one of them, you know, is the mock apple pie that we were talking about recently in the, um, mm -hmm. the blue raspberry episode, which is honestly what gave me the idea for this because, uh, <laughs> we were thinking about how blue is associated with raspberry and the taste and everything. And the mock apple pie is this idea that you can make something that tastes almost identical to an apple pie, but has no apples in it. And that's because of the tartaric acid, which has a very similar acidic taste to the same acid that's in apples. And so since also then, you know, the consistency of the pie filling is very similar to what you would expect from an apple pie filling and that has the acid and sh sugars in a similar ratio, it's hard to distinguish once it gets all that information gets processed to our brain, 
how is this different from apple pie mm-hmm. um and i think it's One of the... it, sorry go ahead i was just gonna say i think it's interesting that you can like trick our taste centers so easily then because it's trying to incorporate all of this different information into creating the experience yeah, having having made and eaten one of these fake apple pies, mm-hmm. one of the really weird experiences is you get the crunch of the cooked apple because mm-hmm. a cooked apple is kind of slimy and and yeah. gelatinous on its surface, but still in the inside has a bit of a, a crunch to it. Mm-hmm. And the way that I made it was with saltine crackers, mm-hmm. and the crackers after you cook them they do have this kind of slimy gelatinous outside, but they still have the crunch of the cracker. And so, like, flavor and taste aside, it's this multimodal thing that you're saying that even the experience of eating something that's kind of slimy and then crunches makes you think that you're eating an apple. And then add the the cinnamon and the sweetness and the tartaric acid, and your brain doesn't know it from an apple. It's it's Exactly. So it's very confusing and very cool. And there's, like, other... Mm you know, there's been like a lot of genetic studies trying to identify different tastes in different people and associate them with different things. And one of the most interesting ones, I think, of this, which you might have heard of, is the flavor of coriander or cilantro. Yeah. Have you heard about this being genetically linked? So what does coriander cilantro taste like to you guys? So. No way. Really? (laughs) Do you not? But do you like it? Do you like it? Not very much. I will okay. do it for for the culture. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I usually won't do it uh, <gasps> if I have a choice. Yeah. Okay. And Alistair, yeah. do you think it tastes like soap? No, I, I wouldn't say I enjoy it, but it definitely doesn't taste like soap to me. It's more of like a kind mm-hmm. of grassy, yeah. I don't know. And I would person. say, like to me, it tastes like cilantro. It's hard to define, honestly, mm-hmm. flavors outside of like the thing I know them as, for sure. But it doesn't taste like soap at all. Um, and I didn't used to like it that's the thing and so one of the interesting and difficult parts about these genetic studies for taste is that the initial studies that were trying to look into cilantro as a flavor you can either group your population based on whether or not they like the flavor of cilantro but that's not necessarily correlated to whether or not it tastes like soap to them so the more Mm -hmm. recent study really looked at whether or not people report it as tasting like soap because apparently some people do not mind the flavor of cilantro even if it is tasting like soap and some mm-hmm. people don't like the flavor of cilantro that doesn't taste like soap. There's, you know, other reasons why people might like or dislike flavors. But they narrowed it down and they did like a genome-wide association study, which is essentially they just look for variations in genes all throughout our genome. And in comparing groups of people who have a specific feature, like thinking cilantro tastes like soap, and a group of people who don't think cilantro tastes like soap, and then they look for you know, variations in a gene or that can be localized to a one gene or multiple genes that are more in the group that thinks it tastes like soap or more in the control group. And they found mm-hmm. a gene that is associated with soapy taste. Can you guess cool. what type of gene it was? A blue so, gene. <laughs> I mean, we've talked about various types of receptors. Right. It's got to be some detergent receptors. I'm so bad. I don't know. <laughs> oh, like, it, does it does it sense basic compounds? It's not a taste receptor at all. It was an olfactory receptor. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh. Not, it does not found in a taste receptor. Mm-hmm. So it's just, like, remarkable sort of this weird information about the sense of taste that you could find. 
Um, so does that mean that if you were to eat cilantro but block off... But plug your nose. Your nose, like plug your nose or even like block off the back access to your olfactory system, you might not think it tastes like soap? Maybe. Maybe. You m- you might not think it tastes at all. <laughs> yeah, I have to think like that. Yeah, okay, <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> you might be blocking yeah. off 90% of your taste. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So I thought that was fascinating. But um, yeah. kind of the last thing I want to touch on, which is the last fascinating aspect of taste is, again, you know, the fact that we can trick our taste sensations. And I've been telling you all this stuff about how taste is not in the tongue. Taste is all of these things. But... Taste is still definitely in the tongue. I'm going to go back on that. It's super definitely in the tongue. And this is one of the coolest, I think, uh, ways to demonstrate this or one of the most uh, interesting things we have are artificial sweeteners. And this particular artificial sweetener that comes from the miracle fruit. The miracle fruit. I have heard about this. Yes. So the miracle fruit. I actually, yeah. Have you tried it? Have you used it? I have tried it. Great. We'll talk about that. Okay. Okay. I, I, I want to learn about the miracle. Brand fruit. new. Yeah. So the miracle yeah. fruit is from a like. It's a plant, I guess. It's from West Africa, and uh, in some time in the 1900s, you know, some British colonizer observed West African people eating the berry, and they would eat it before meals, and they had a lot of bitter foods in their meals. But the berry doesn't taste like anything. They but they would chew it and sort of masticate it, get it all over their tongue before consuming bitter foods. And the miracle was in discovering that when you do this, even though the berry is virtually tasteless, subsequent foods that you eat are super sweet, especially if they were sour before or bitter before. And they taste a lot better, particularly sour foods, I guess. And I think they drank a lot of like palm wine and things that have like sour or acidic compounds in them. And they would chew this berry and it would make them sweet. And this was a miracle. Yay. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they call it miracle berry, and eventually they identified a glycoprotein, which is a protein that is modified with um, a sugar chain that they named miraculin. <laughs> and <laughs> Very original. This protein is essentially what causes the sensation of changing sour foods to sweet. Um, and so how it does this is it... Am I going to talk about how it does this first? I think I'm going to show you guys the fun little article I found about this first, actually. And so this is from the Journal of Undergraduate Neuroscience Education. And it's an experiment that they recommend you do with undergrads to learn about taste sensation, about the different sort of tastinesses of, um, or taste modalities, I guess, that your tongue can perceive. And mm-hmm. how this protein can modulate them. And so what they did is they took students and they had them try a bunch of different food items that are kind of classified into different taste categories before um, chewing a miracle berry and then after chewing a miracle berry and then rating them on a rating of how sweet are they. And so they do this with jelly beans, which are their like sweet fruit, fruit, food, food. (laughs) Jelly beans are a fruit. I just you heard it here first. <laughs> My brain stopped right there. <laughs> they did this with jelly beans, which are as a sweet food. They did this with goldfish crackers as a salty food, broccoli as a bitter food, and lemons as a sour food. Okay. I wouldn't. That's interesting. I wouldn't think of broccoli as a bitter food, but yeah, it kind of is. Huh. Yeah. This well, I guess they did it with grocery store items. <laughs> I guess they could have yeah. done it. The problem is, I think a lot of bitter foods are also sour, and you wanted to do one 
dark green vegetables mm. are kind of most bitter without being sour. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I guess like, like yeah, yeah. You'd like imagine Swiss chard too, if, or like raw I was kale. Say kale. Raw kale, kale, very bitter. Yeah. Um. And so they did this before and after eating the miracle berry. So you can see here that the miracle berry does not alter the perception <laughs> of sweetness of broccoli or goldfish or jelly beans, but. It takes lemon, which I'm sure if you've had a slice of lemon wedge, is ridiculously sour. Very, mm-hmm. very, very not not something almost you would ever just eat. Unless you're crazy like me. <laughs> Do you just eat raw lemon wedges? Yeah, whenever I like get a drink and it has a little lemon wedge, I just. Oh. But that's it. but you're eating bitter foods at the same like you're drinking usually bitter drinks, right? No, not necessarily. Okay. But in any case, eating a raw lemon wedge on its own is a mean sweetness rating of around three, according to students, which I think is yeah. generous, but maybe they had nicer lemons <laughs> than I have had. <laughs> <laughs> and after eating the Miracle Berry, it's a raw sweetness rating around eight or nine, which is exactly on par with the sweetness of a jelly bean. Yeah. Damn. It's unreal. Mm-hmm. Um, That's so cool. So essentially what this protein does is it binds as soon as you like chew the berry and the protein is on your tongue it binds to your sweet receptors but it does not as i told you before it's in a the sweet receptors the sweet receptors work in a sort of venus flytrap model model in that normally when something binds it brings them together they close and that's what sends the signal down but when this mm-hmm. protein binds they do not come together and close it just binds them in their native format so they're unactivated format However, once you introduce a change in the pH, which is what sour foods are, is a a more acidic food, which is a lower pH. So once you lower the pH of this protein, it changes conformation and this causes the activation of the sweet receptors that it's bound to. So that triggers a very quick and very strong sweet sensation. That is so cool. It's very interesting. <laughs> and that is amazing. And what's interesting about it is, you know, that doesn't stop the sour signal from being sent from the tongue, right? Like, I'm not saying that it is preventing sourness from being detected. So Japanese researchers in 2006 looked at um, human brain scans of people experiencing this. Uh, I think they both, like, looked at, like, the tongue responses, so the nerve responses of the sour and sweet, as well as then the human or the brain response of sour and sweet Mm -hmm. i guess not in humans in primates um okay there's a lot of evidence but to summarize when you look at the sour and sweet responses in the tongue nerves in the sort of first modality that transmits the information they are both being transmitted so you would think the sour taste would be there but when you Mm -hmm. look at the brain scans of humans at that level, once it's been processed, you lose the sour process. So the sour taste is kind of like, at some point, subtracted from the sensation, which is why it tastes so sweet. And it's presumably because the um, the overwhelming sweet signal that you're also getting at the same time it dominates the signal that we then interpret in our brain and create a story out of for our taste sensation. Um, interesting. Very. Your brain is doing a calculus, and it's like, I prefer this sweet is so sweet that like yeah. that sour doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. Effectively. Yeah. That's so cool. So I've actually 
had these berries. Yeah. I heard about these when I was in high school, and I you can order. It's basically the the berry mashed up into like a little um, a tablet lozenge. Yeah. yeah, and you just you can suck on the lozenge and dissolve it in your mouth. And so I tried this, mm-hmm. and it was the wildest experience eating things, because I tried oranges, limes, and lemons, mm-hmm. and I tried them before, and they were all you know sweet with the orange was kind of sweet and then the the lime and the lemon were sour um but then it was really weird to eat the lime and the lemon after having the sensation changed because it was literally like eating a lemon flavored jelly bean where where none of the sour is there and it's just lemon flavor and sweet same with the lime but i was still getting the sour experience of you know when like you bite into something sour and your teeth Feel, you can mm-hmm. feel the acid. And like, you, like, produce more saliva had, or something. Yeah, I yeah. still had all that response, but I was tasting this really sweet... So I wanted to eat more of it, but I was also like, it feels yeah. wrong. Like, I wouldn't... I mean, I do sometimes eat lemon wedges, <laughs> as I say. But, like, it's not like I eat them one after another, just, like, popping them like candy. Mm-hmm. But it tasted so good that I was like, I could, but I shouldn't <laughs> yeah. ruin the enamel of my teeth. Mm-hmm. But it's it's such a cool experience. Yeah. I've also had the opportunity to try it and exactly the same thing. Like I remember describing it, you know, the lemon wedges tasted like lemon meringue pie. They were Mm -hmm. so good. And same with the lime wedges. And then we also did little shots of apple cider vinegar. I don't know if you've ever (sighs) drank apple cider vinegar, but it's vinegar. Mm -hmm. It's, Mm -hmm. it's sour. (laughs) It's very, very, and in fact, it burns on its way down. It tasted like apple juice. And it burned on its way down. <laughs> but you couldn't, I could not tell. It was shocking. You know, like yeah. normally I would shudder and like be quite off put by apple cider vinegar in my mouth. And I had, I was like this, literally I can swish it around in my mouth. It tastes like apple juice. And the only problem is it still burns my throat when I swallow. I wonder what like white vinegar would taste like. Because I didn't try that. But yeah. white vinegar doesn't really have a taste. Maybe it's like sugar. Sour. <laughs> then Maybe. Sugar yeah. water. Hmm. Maybe I should get more of these miracle uh, berries. Yeah, and try. I think it would be really interesting to try. Um, it's in the in the uh, spirit of Western science ignoring, uh, you know, mm, cultural practices, especially in Africa. Mm-hmm. The FDA has pretty much said you can't add use miraculin as a sweetener because it's like an unclassified and undetermined to be safe food additive. Mm. Uh, so that's it can be kind of hard to obtain, and that's why you can only buy it in tablets too. Especially like you have to, the, yeah, you have to buy it in tablets, and it has to be like a dietary supplement or something like very specific to be allowed to be used. And you can't use it as a sweetener, at least in Canada and the states. I think in Japan and in some other countries, there's more like use of it in actual food processing but um yeah i think it's super interesting and it's a fascinating kind of like the mock apple pie again you can trick your taste senses that way just by based on you know other modalities of information and mimicking something well enough but then there's also like compounds existing in nature that trick your senses specifically through the taste buds and the taste receptors despite me telling you that the story of taste is much more complicated than that you know mm-hmm. so there's all sorts of levels at which taste can be modulated and which which we create our representation of taste in our brain and yeah it's fascinating it's a fascinating field 
And salt, right. we still don't so, know. Salt happens. <laughs> salt happens. We don't know how we do it. So. That's so interesting. Mm-hmm. If anything, this episode has made me incredibly hungry for some sweet and sour chicken. Oh, and the final, oh my God, the final controversy in the field that I forgot to bring up, but I did want to bring up, and I don't have an answer to as well yet, but maybe one day the field will answer this, is the, there's like this contradictory idea about whether or not fat is a distinct flavor on its own. Um, And so fat is obviously the quality of having fats in your food. That's typically how Mm -hmm. it's associated, but it's difficult to parse whether or not it's distinctly a mechanical stimulus or like a textural stimulus or whether there's any sort of like taste information processed through the fats alone. And it's contentious. There's some evidence that there's specific fats that do have receptors that could be processed similarly to taste. But when you apply, like when somebody tastes just that, it doesn't taste good. It tastes bitter again. So it doesn't seem like we're getting any distinct information about it. Who knows? I think I'm going to throw my hat in the ring and say that I'm coming down on the side of it is not a flavor, but it acts like a flavor. Mm Kind of how we talked about these receptors or other places in the body and do other things because Mm -hmm. fats come in many different forms. So I don't think it would just be a texture thing, but there is definitely a propensity (laughs) for fats that we have, like a craving. Um, And... I read a really interesting book called Salt, Sugar, Fat, and it kind of talks about this. Um, One of the things I didn't realize about fats is when you think about craveable foods, like really nice, good pizza or fries or, Mm -hmm. you know, crescent rolls. Crescent roll, I don't know why I use that as a bread. (laughs) Like, a lot of these things have fats in them. Yeah. And it, it, anyway, uh, Mm -hmm. I'm coming down on the side of this controversy and saying that it is a flavor, but not in the way that you think. There you go. Yeah. (laughs) There might even be, like, a distinction now when, like, Maybe the, the taste science community got has to get this resolved where, like, flavor and taste aren't necessarily the same, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it, taste seems to be, like, the holistic experience I'm hearing, but, like, yeah. maybe they they have some uh, internal dialogue to have. <laughs> Just, yeah. I, I love, like, pretending there's drama or, like, real, like, <laughs> wars going on in the science community. But I, We're not going to talk people... to any of the taste scientists, but I assume they're at each other's throats. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. exactly. The conferences, they, they have to keep them, yeah. like, not just physically distanced because of COVID, but they actually have to, like, yeah. barricade them. Two camps. If you read in between the lines of the discussion, you can clearly see the authors attacking everyone else. Yeah. But, <laughs> but, yeah, ultimately it seems like there's a big difference between the chemical response, right, mm-hmm. and the holistic idea of taste. And I think that, you know, the colloquial term may not be sufficient to describe what we're, we're, yeah. st- we're trying to study, really. And even the idea That's a really of, great way of putting it. Another mm-hmm. great example of that is the idea of mouth taste versus flavor too because like if you have like dry tannin heavy foods yeah tannins are found in like red wine coffee tea and i think of this best i i mean it happens to me in wine but i i think of this best as like with like dark on tea with no milk is when you drink it it's very dry and like yeah bitter but the dryness from the tannins is not a flavor at all mm-hmm. it's actually tannins cause precipitation of salival proteins and like create aggregates of them so in a sense it almost is like an a physical dryness in that you're creating like solids on your tongue or like clusters of precipitated proteins and that's, that's what's so detected as like kind of a dry coating yeah. in your mouth 
I always thought that when I drank red wine that had a lot of tannins that I, there was actually like particulate yeah. in the wine. No, but it's, it's creating no, but it's my actually my saliva. Out of your saliva. Yeah. Yeah, it's yourself. That's so interesting. Gross. That's huh? so cool. <laughs> <laughs> saliva <Yeah>. particles. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the field of taste research has so much fascinating stuff to discover, and I, I think know. maybe to us it it seems pretty uh, standard that umami is a flavor, but I'm mm-hmm. pretty sure that like a lot of people don't know about umami or haven't really considered that savoriness is even a flavor. Yeah, and I think that was honestly, uh, again, Western science fault. Mm. (laughs) This is the fault of Western scientists is that like we didn't, you know, white people didn't consider it a flavor or think of it. So when Western science was doing science in the beginning of the century or whatever, whenever this happened, they were developing the like taste and flavors science without the concept of umami. And that was imported from the Japanese word for savory, right? And mm-hmm. has now obviously is a recognized flavor. And typically it's like, um, you know, predominantly associated with the flavor of glutamate or monosodium glutamate, MSG. Yeah, MSG. And it's a way of like, it's it's not surprising at all, not, like if you just logic through it, because of course you want to be able to detect how much protein is in your food. That's of course a mm-hmm. useful chemical knowledge for your mouth to like, sent to your brain but um definitely a strange a strange a lacking piece of the puzzle when we were just considering like early western science on this type of subject um Mm -hmm. but yeah umami the flavor of savoriness of glutamate of monosodium glutamate i love it of mushrooms mushrooms are very heavy Mm. in umami and i love soy sauce (laughs) if you want to level up your food you know just add a little msg yeah i started uh adding msg to my cooking because i yeah realized that people there's kind of the stigma about it causing headaches and stuff and mm-hmm. that it's not i true. looked it up and like it's not actually true and mm-hmm. so i started using it and just all the food that i've made with it it just adds a deliciousness it adds savoriness but it, yeah. yeah and there's also another so, let me there was another one that i actually hadn't heard of called kokumi which is a taste sensation again in asian cuisine and it is a mm. separate taste modality as well but it's associated with the feeling of like the sensation of a thicker taste so you know if you you can tell the difference between a thin broth and a thick broth but you can't quite Mm. pinpoint what it is i think that's how you kind of could like define kokumi it's rich Mm. savory richness flavor Mm. But not, like, richness in terms of, like, sweet foods. Richness in terms of, like, savory, broth, sweet, salty, umami flavors. Um, And there is, like, a receptor that is in humans that is likely the taste receptor for this. And um, Cool. Yeah, it detects umami and sweet tastes. But I think, essentially, there's sort of, like, a synergistic effect of combining different molecules that create this sensation of, like, Mm -hmm. yeah, I guess triggering both the sweet, salty, and umami sensations in certain ways create this richness that is a separate flavor modality as well so complicated and it's hard to figure out because as i say everyone has different sensations and it's created by a lot of different things our mouths we didn't even talk about yeah the heat receptors why gum makes everything cold Mm -hmm. why Mm -hmm. there's Mm -hmm. also don't worry i'll be doing an episode on that yeah, good. Yeah, you better make, cover it. In season six, we can revisit the. <laughs> Once yeah. we've done all five, we can just revisit them. 
see what's yeah. new. <laughs> yeah. There's also like specific receptors for um, compounds found in certain savory uh, spices, like um, oregano, savory, clove, and thyme. So those have their own whole set of receptors that are responsible for detecting the compounds in those that aren't taste receptors necessarily. Again, so it's like another separate method of detecting flavor modalities in foods. Very complicated system. Mm-hmm. All of the things have all of their own little ways. Very cool. Yes. Do you have a quiz? Yeah, why not? <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> um, do you all have right. a buzzer? Uh, I'm, I'm just going to do his buzzer first. I didn't uh, buzzer I'm going to do... Going under the bus. Uh, I'm going to go... We're going to do like the puckering of sour. Like... <laughs> nice. I love oh. it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You, you kind of took mine, but well, I'm going to do... Um, let me go first. <laughs> mine's going to be probably really bad for our listeners' ears, but mine's going to be... Ew. <laughs> this is like opposite of ASMR. Yeah. Yeah. ASMR. <laughs> Alrighty. Good. Okay. Um, so, question numero uno. What is the name of the primary taste organ in our mouths i think i hear alistair making a noise but i more see it is it the tongue <laughs> the that's not what i the taste bud the taste bud the taste bud. ding 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 it's the taste bud taste bud i can give you <laughs> half a point for that because that was kind of lame <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> took a little while to get there. You answered wrong. First. Yeah, I remember why I stopped doing quizzes. <laughs> I was just immediately started thinking of the onion. I was like, onion. onion. Yeah, it's the onion. <laughs> the onion <laughs> of the, the mouth. Onion, uh, the taste bud. Mm-hmm. Question number two What type of cells transmit information about sour compounds? Kiss, kiss. Okay. I'm saying, it's, I feel like it's 50 50, so I'm just going to go with type two. Oof, I'm damn, so sorry. I can't give you the point. It is type, type three. 3 cells. Wait, no. I, I'm not going to give you the steal because there were only two types of cells. Exactly. <laughs> There's three types of cells. Yeah. Well, one is just a helper cell, right? Yeah, the other one is a precursor cell. Yeah, Actually, I'm technically, sorry. there's four, because there's the, the baby. That's what I said. That's yeah. what I'm just said. I'm going to give Om half a point for describing the precursor cell and the helper I'll cell as well. I'll take it. What? I said the Tied baby up. cell. But... The quiz is tied. You can't, you can't argue with the quiz master. <laughs> okay. <laughs> nice try, Just you wait till I do my quiz. Mm-hmm. And um, let me think. I'm trying to think of what else I said in this, in this podcast, because my notes are not very in-depth. Uh, question number three. The tiebreaker. The tiebreaker to break all ties <laughs> with each other. Uh, <laughs> what is the name of the plant compound and how does it work that we discussed? Mwah. Let's go. Um. Braculin. <laughs> yes. And it is a... Uh, glycoprotein that yeah. binds to the receptor and leaves it open an unbound state yeah but it upon changes in ph like by eating like citric acid or something yeah. like binds, it suddenly leads to a huge amount of activation and you taste sweet ding ding Yay. ding Great. but you still get the sour response you still do, <laughs> but it's, it's just it. quieted by the time it reaches yeah. your brain because brain's like too much sweet it's definitely sweet <laughs> the world is sweet yes can i get like 
commiseration points because I knew that it was a glycoprotein, and I feel like remembering yes. that is, yeah. as a chemist, is, yeah. uh, you know. You can have a quarter of my point. There you go. <laughs> a quarter of <laughs> your final score. Of my... <laughs> 0. 0.75 to 1.5 um, leads and wins the quiz. A, a massive <laughs> win. Yeah. Big wins, big wins. Uh, we all won, though, because we all learned mm-hmm. about taste and how unclear of a sense it is. Absolutely. No maps, no organization, just pure vibes. That's how I think of taste. <laughs> it really just great just vibes. vibes is a great way to describe that. Yeah. Pure vibes uh. is great. <laughs> So that's the episode on taste. Thank you all for tuning in again and listening. And I hope you get to taste some nice things after you listen to this in case it's around a mealtime or in case you just feel like it. Um, And yeah, that's also maybe if you do get the opportunity to try out the Miracle Berry fruit or the tablets that you can get it in form of, definitely try it. It's really cool and like shocking. And also try the mock apple pie, because even if you make it yourself and you know it's not apple pie, you also can't tell that it's not apple pie, which is, again, just trickery of the brain. Uh, and we love brain trickery in this <laughs> in this world. So thank you for listening. My name's Sienna. My name's Alistair. My name's Alm. And we'll catch you at the next episode, which will be about an undetermined topic. Hope to see you then. <laughs> Bye. Kiss, kiss.